Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. At the end of each week, I am joined by a guest to help us distill and further examine what we heard in trial that previous week. Again this week, my guest is Abby Smith, who serves as Professor of Law and Director of the Criminal Defense and Prisoner Advocacy Clinic at Georgetown University. Together we'll explore a number of the issues that were raised by the testimony of Daily Caller video director Richie McGinnis. While we also started our coverage of the testimony of Kyle Rittenhouse associate Ryan Balch this week, we're going to review that questioning during next week's recap. Our discussion of Richie McGinnis on the witness stand is coming up right after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And now, my conversation with Georgetown Law Professor and Criminal Defense Attorney, Abby Smith. Abby Smith, thank you for joining us again. Hi, glad to be here. So, another witness complete. Tell us what you thought about the testimony of Rishi McGinnis. Well, I hope I can say this on this podcast, but I thought McGinnis was kind of a shit show for the prosecution. And I was constantly stunned that Binger would call him and hardly achieve anything resembling the prosecution's theory in this case. I think the direct examination scored more points for the defense than for the prosecution by far. And then I think Richards had a lovely cross-examination where he basically scored all the points he needed to to make out self-defense. During the direct examination, Binger had this point where he got McGinnis to acknowledge that he was afraid and that he felt himself in the line of fire. And yet he moved away from that super fast. What were some of the questions he could have asked during that portion of McGinnis's testimony? I think he should have kept it more factual and not had the direct examination or the cross for that matter be so much about what McGinnis was speculating about, but other people's motives and or even what he was feeling because he was complicated. He couldn't answer a question briefly. He was grudging in the points that he was willing to give Binger. I think if Binger had stuck to the facts and got the witness to describe in detail how the gun was attached to Rittenhouse and how the gun never left the person of Rittenhouse, how it was firmly attached and the kind of gun it was and more about the direction in which the gun was pointed and more about how a gun might be used, not just to discharge bullets, but as a kind of cudgel or, you know, blunt object to hit a person with, if he had kept it 
factual like that, the witness would have given him those points. But the more he allowed McGinnis to kind of ponder the questions, reflect upon his answer, the more obfuscation there was. He was a difficult witness at best. And I just don't think Binger homed in the way he needed to, to get the stuff that was undisputed from this witness. Let's come back to Binger in a second, because there were a couple of things he did both on direct and then on redirect that were just as mystifying as some of his other missteps, in my view. But I want to move on to Richards for a second, to Mark Richards' cross-examination. Sure. Take us through your impressions of some of the beats of that cross. I'm increasingly struck by the affability of Richards and that he really uses that kind of avuncular style of his to advantage. I think he probably had a sympathetic witness in McGinnis from the start, but he had a very easy way of getting McGinnis to give him the answers he wanted. He got a little greedy at one point in that he wanted to get McGinnis to say that he had zero fear of Kyle Rittenhouse, that he was fearful of everything else, you know, but not this young cherubic Boy Scout that he's painting Rittenhouse to be. He didn't get that quite, but he didn't need that. That's the only mistake I think he made, and it wasn't a serious mistake. He scored the points he needed to score. You know, he painted Rosenbaum as aggressive, and he used McGinnis's fear, I think, as a kind of surrogate for Rittenhouse's fear. That was his whole point. And he also succeeded in getting McGinnis to acknowledge that it was his perception that there were people trying to get Rittenhouse's gun and that there was a team of people, or at least it was plausible and perhaps on balance likely that there was a team of people involving Rosenbaum and perhaps Zeminski and some other people who were walking in the same direction, who were part of a plan to try to get Kyle Rittenhouse's gun. And while Binger tried to attack that on redirect, I thought that Richard succeeded in getting McGinnis to buy into that line of thinking. I think what I would say is that Richards had the better of that particular argument on cross-examination because he created an image of threat against Rittenhouse. Binger did a decent job of making plain that at no time did Rosenbaum ever say the words, I'm going to get your gun or I'm going to take your gun. I mean, he cleaned that up, but he did not mute the threat that Richards was able to create. Richards also got in, even though it was objected to and the objection was sustained, he got in the question of whether Rosenbaum would have been shot if he hadn't lunged at Kyle Rittenhouse. Right. And then that was made even worse on redirect when McGinnis is musing that who knows what would have happened if Rittenhouse hadn't discharged his firearm, you know, which is a perfect thing for a jury to have to sit with. You don't need to oversell that point for the point to be made. Right. Rather than keeping the jury focused on what would have happened if Rittenhouse's gun had been pointed one millimeter to the right or left, would it have hit Richie McGinnis's femoral artery and killed him? And would he have met the same fate as Anthony Huber? Right. It was a decent try. You know, the focus on 
on McGinnis having said that he felt something or sensed something and thought that perhaps he'd been shot and then he stamped his feet to make sure he hadn't been shot. That could have been more artfully accomplished also. I mean, the point was clearly that Rittenhouse was being reckless, that anybody could have been shot, even somebody like McGinnis, who was simply there engaged in reporting. But it didn't come across that way for whatever reason. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In the next part of our conversation, Abby and I begin to drill down on Prosecutor Thomas Binger's general handling of Richie McGinnis as a witness. Another aspect of Binger's questioning of McGinnis is that he seemed to go out of his way to make Richie McGinnis a sympathetic witness. I mean, he was the people's witness. You would think that, yeah, okay, the prosecution wants their witness to be sympathetic. But he was doing this after McGinnis had been resistant to Binger's narrative. And yet, Binger went all in on allowing McGinnis to tell everyone of the, you know, frankly, heroic measures that he went to as he was trying to staunch Rosenbaum's bleeding. He had people accusing him of being the shooter and he expressed his fear of the situation. He expressed his anxiety about the people around him. He acknowledged that he got punched in the face on cross-examination by one of the protesters who was around Joseph Rosenbaum. And yet Binger just leaned into that and made a witness who ultimately served the defense better than it served the prosecution. He helped make that guy into a very sympathetic character for the jury. I agree. And a very credible witness. I mean, that part of his testimony simply enhanced his credibility. Wherever his sympathies may have been, he was kind of heroic toward a guy he had no sympathy for. He was heroic to Rosenbaum. He did everything he could to save the guy's life. You could tell. You, you could hear it in the audio. And during his testimony, when he said the last thing he said to Rosenbaum was, you know, you're going to make it through this and we're going to have a beer one day. Yeah. No, he sounded like a good guy. So he sounded both likable and credible and even handed. He was a fantastic witness for the defense. The prosecution had to have known that he was going to be good for the defense. How could they not have? There had to have been some preparation. And he had to have said some of the same stuff that he said on the witness stand. I'm also, I'm a little surprised about the organization of the direct examination by Binger. You know, one of the things that you learn in trial advocacy classes in law school and that hopefully you continue to develop as a trial lawyer is how to organize a witness examination most effectively. And there's a theory of primacy and recency. You want to start strong and end strong for your side. 
start strong and end strong, consistent with your theory of the case. And that did not happen for Binger at all. I mean, the last series of questions he asked on redirect were not good for him. And likewise, even the you know beginning of the direct wasn't good for him either. That's why I think he should have been more cautious and careful and kept it factual and not let him be the kind of voice of Rittenhouse's experience. Because I think the jury comes away then with this feeling of threat in the air and reasonable fearfulness of what was going to happen out there that night that's entirely consistent with the defense theory of self-defense and not so consistent with the prosecution's theory that this guy was a loose cannon. You know, he needed to make plain that there was no way anybody was getting this kid's gun, that this gun was attached. And he needed to make plain that Kyle Rittenhouse didn't try lesser means of protecting himself, like leaving, like joining the other people up on the roof, like walking away or using less than deadly force. And he also, he needed McGinnis to say more about how Rosenbaum was unarmed and small. Even the, even his stature was a really brief moment. That, you know, that'd be a perfectly safe beginning or ending is to make plain the size differential between Rittenhouse and Rosenbaum, not to mention that one was armed with a deadly weapon and the other one wasn't. I mean, those that that's the kind of factual examination that I think would have had a better payoff. Here's another attack that I'd love to hear your thoughts on. There was no inquiry by Binger about whether McGinnis was concerned that Kyle Rittenhouse House wasn't aware that his firing that weapon might not only hit Joseph Rosenbaum, but might hit an innocent bystander. That right. popping that weapon off four times in a matter of a couple seconds tops, that he might miss Rosenbaum or that bullet, which was a full metal jacket bullet, not a hollow point. And so it would have gone right through Rosenbaum and could have hit someone behind Rosenbaum. That the recklessness of that act was never questioned was a real mistake by Banger. Well, that's really interesting because the defense used to their advantage the fact that this was rapid fire, that the shots were really quickly discharged in order to suggest it was fearful, instinctive, reactive kind of shooting as opposed to a slower discharge. I thought that was a very interesting tack. And I think you're right that Binger could have used the same facts with a different interpretation, that there were people out there and there were people out there in all different directions and that real damage could have happened. Because as long as his witness was kind of pontificating, I think he could have gotten him to say, sure, absolutely. He missed me by inches less than inches. I think that that tack, that strategy by the prosecution would have required them to acknowledge not only that Joseph Rosenbaum was a problematic complaining witness slash victim, but that he was actually a menace that night, that Joseph Rosenbaum was not doing anybody any favors out there on the streets of Kenosha. And yet it was the defendant's recklessness that not only killed Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber and injured Gage Grosskreutz, but put the lives of Richie McGinnis and others in danger, and that that recklessness should have been the point of the trial. Now, it may not have held water, but at least it would have been consistent with the facts rather than being kind of contrafactual in the way that Binger's arguments seemed to be. And it would have rebutted the kind of conventional defense tactic of vilifying the victim 
victim. Rosenbaum was not a perfect victim. But I have to say, Carrie, most victims in serious crimes, especially in an urban firearms kind of context, are not perfect victims. And so that shouldn't have been so challenging for Binger to have a victim who wasn't perfect. You know, he could have done something to diffuse that more in his opening. You know, he could have said to the jury, look, this he was not a perfect person. He had some problems, didn't deserve to die. But, you know, if if you can't do that, then I agree with you. You've got to make Rittenhouse be a menace to the kinds of people that a jury might find more valuable or worthwhile, like McGinnis and others. But I'm really interested to hear what Binger will do with this in the closing, because, you know, it can't be that just because somebody is unsympathetic or has problems or was discharged from a hospital or is just a pain in the neck human being, it can't be that he deserves to die when he's unarmed and there are alternatives for the person who is armed. The part that I find surprising is Binger's an experienced prosecutor. He has to have had other than perfect victims before in the past, just has to have. And he needs to humanize his victims more. I understand the judge didn't want them called victims, but you could portray a person as a victim without using that word. And the recklessness, he just could have done such a, so many other things to get at that than what he did. Abby, we're three witnesses into this case. What are your observations about how and why the prosecution is pursuing the case the way they are? Especially hearing McGinnis's testimony, I began to wonder, why didn't the prosecution offer a plea in this case? If these first three witnesses are the best the state of Wisconsin has to offer, my goodness, they had to have known it was going to be a tough case to win. So offer some kind of plea. It could have been a lower level felony. It could have included some form of recklessness. I don't know Wisconsin law well enough to give you the exact charge, but I have to think that fence lawyer would have seriously contemplated something less than the three charges that were ultimately brought at at trial. And I imagine Mr. Rittenhouse would have considered it people are risk averse. I'm mystified by this. The other thing I wanted to say about what the defense did really well was made the point about how there's nothing unusual about carrying a firearm openly in Wisconsin. And he had fun in that part of the cross-examination. Oh, you know, you're not allowed to carry a gun openly in New York City. You're not allowed to carry a gun openly in Washington, D.C. But in Wisconsin, you can you know, basically kind of neutralized the recklessness that is so central to Binger's prosecution, you know, by suggesting there was nothing unusual about him carrying a firearm. But I don't know, you know, if I was the defense counsel in this case, and, you know, I knew we're talking about two people killed and one person who could have been killed, and the prosecution comes in with something less than intentional homicide, comes in with something less than the kind of reckless homicide that you know would require a lengthy prison sentence, I'm going to seriously counsel my client to cut his losses and consider a plea. I don't know whether there were these discussions between the prosecution and defense, but man, I think given the evidence so far, this case should have been pled out and not tried if the prosecution hoped to get any conviction at all. All right, Abby Smith. Well, again, thank you for joining us this week, and we'll look forward to regrouping next week. Okay, look forward to that. That brings to a close this weekly recap of Jury Duty, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. 
Join us next week as we review the testimony of Kyle Rittenhouse's associate on the night of August 25, 2020, Ryan Balch. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our guest on this episode was professor of law at Georgetown University, Abby Smith. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. It was edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and trial audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.